This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the Matrix. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. And welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, the middle children of history, Toby and Vaughn. Hi, guys. Hi, Simon. Hey, Simon. And today, we are getting out our Will Smith CDs, putting on our corporate suits and giant ties, and going to work in our office cubicles to worry about Y2K and gossip about the Clinton impeachment trial, because we are heading to the late 90s, and in particular, we are looking at late 90s cinema and films such as Fight Club, The Matrix, and The Truman Show. The films we'll be looking at deal with ideas such as masculinity, corporate ownership and consumerism, and the growth of technology, and features stories where white men in comfortable office jobs seek to reject their reality in search of a greater purpose. And to help us dive into this subject, we have a special guest. Adam Naiman is a contributing editor for Cinemascope and writes about film for The Ringer, Sight and Sound, Reverse Shot and Little White Lies, and lectures on cinema and journalism at the University of Toronto and Ryerson University. He has written books on Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson, Ben Wheatley, the Coen brothers, the film Showgirls, and his latest book, Mind Games, look at the work, looks at the work of David Fincher. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on getting the great Bong Joon-ho to write the forward on your latest book. Yeah, it's surreal that he that he surreal that he said yes, but he's a big Fincher fan, and I love that we reproduced his intro in Korean characters, which is just very beautiful to to look at side by side with the English translation. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a really interesting book. Everyone should check it out if you get the chance. It's a wonderful combination of of imagery and of uh, Adam's uh, take on the book, which is at sometimes at contrast, considering it's almost a visual celebration and and at times a uh, a real uh, dig into into the, the films, both for good and bad. So uh, congratulations on the book, Adam. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Uh, the list of 90s films that I've got uh, listed down here that we're going to be looking at are The Matrix, Fight Club, The Truman Show, Office Space, American Beauty, and Being John Malkovich. So we'll, we'll try our best to get through those if possible. Uh, there's a line in Fight Club in the scene where Edward Norton is beating himself up in his boss's office, which he states, Under and behind and inside everything, the man took for granted something horrible had been growing. Um, and I think that's kind of a good teaser for this episode and uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about. Before we get into the specifics, I'd like to just quickly hear from you guys on what you think of, of late 90s, pre-9-11 media, and in particular the films at that time. Do you feel like you're looking at a world that no longer exists? What do you make of the concerns that the, the people in these films are dealing with? Adam, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll age myself or date myself. I was born in 1981 and, uh, you know, I'm 40 now. So I have a certain nostalgia for the late 90s, but that's a nostalgia, I guess, for the end of adolescence and the beginning of, of, of grown up things, which is interesting because a lot of the movies we're going to talk about today and a lot of the popular culture that period that I remember engaging with had to do with a, almost a reclaiming of adolescence, right? a reclaiming of the rebellious or the juvenile. I mean, a movie like American Beauty is all about a regression to a teenage state. So there was a sort of contradiction, I guess, of growing up and feeling like you're coming out of that 
then you see these acclaimed films and 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 TV shows and novels that sort of are are, are pulling back in the other direction. And I also think that you know a word that people tend to throw around a lot with that period is is anxiety, but a kind of generalized free floating anxiety. And in the same way that I think the internet was starting to make everything generalized and free floating and a more ambient kind of popular culture, I think that anxiety is ambient. When I look back at Y2K or that New Year's Eve 1999 and think about where I was, where my friends were and whatever, it feels very, uh, it feels very quaint. And it's, it's, it's interesting to have a kind of midlife distance, uh, uh, midlife distance from it. But I have a certain nostalgia for it because it's the nostalgia of the formation of my taste and my university studies and my record collection. And so I can't totally disavow it, even though I think a lot of it's pretty tacky. Toby, any thoughts on, on what comes to mind with late 90s cinema? I think actually what comes to mind with late 90s cinema is exactly these, these movies. I probably would also add uh, Falling Down as well. It's this this sort of sense of uh, as Adam's talked about this this anxiety. I I tend to think of it as like a reaction to yuppiedoms. It's like yuppiedoms seem to be seem to hold so much um, so much promise for for a number of Americans. But into the nineties, especially in these office movies, you can see that people actually they kind of became disenchanted with a lot of that. And there is this um, this sense of trying to find uh oneself one's greater purpose probably trying to find it through becoming a child as well yeah i it, and i also think that actually the world of these office movies isn't a world that is gone i don't think it's gone i think there are many people who probably feel the same way um sort of bowling and loan thesis or the, a, a feeling of existential dread when they go to work that these kinds of books that get written all the time about you know these kinds of like um faceless managerial jobs and 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 all this and and the and the kind of um masculine feelings that were coming out of that period they they haven't really gone uh as well you know it's this feeling that uh, men are becoming displaced because of their roles in the workplace the 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 feminization of work all of this stuff you know It's, it's the same thing what one sees in um the kinds of training pamphlets for work and things like that no i i i think this is probably the beginning of of our, of our, our own world and going back to the earliest uh, incarnations of um, reflecting on it, I think is, is really important. And I, and I look forward to, to, to looking at that and learning from you guys on, on this podcast. Vaughn, bon, any thoughts on late 90s media apart from your, your love of the, the New Democrats? <laughs> yeah, so much love. Um, <laughs> So this this is a really interesting question for me because I think I'm the youngest one here. I was born in 94. So I don't have the same kind of nostalgia that that you guys might have with the late 90s or late 90s films because I didn't watch them until I was much older in in many cases. Um and I was living in a different time when I watched these films like the late 2000s or for a couple of the films that we're talking about today, literally last night. So I, I find this an interesting question because I, I don't really have an opinion, I think, about late 90s media or the presentation of um, masculinity in these films that predates doing research for this or, or being prompted to think of these films in, in a certain way. Um, I definitely have had opinions on Fight Club for years, 
but I, I never really put them into a framework of the 1990s. So I'm very excited about this conversation because just from the research that I have done so far for this one, um, it's given me a new appreciation that I that I didn't I didn't really have. I didn't really have an answer to this question before I was prompted to by you uh, by you guys for this episode. So and I think I, I share that because the late 90s for me again is like it's academic reflection as well. Mm-hmm. Like I I can only remember R and B from the late 90s. That's all I can remember. I, I was, it wasn't there really. I was like eight, yeah. you know. <laughs> Like, I remember Y2K. I remember where I was in, like, like Christmas Eve or uh, New Year's Eve 1999. Like, I remember what happened then. But it feels like a very kind of isolated memory because I was five, right? Mm -hmm. So I I just, I don't think that I have the same associations. And I think it's going to lead to a very interesting conversation um, about all of this. Absolutely. I I was born in 89, so... Again, I don't have a huge amount of kind of personal experience of going to cinemas or anything like that and watching Fight Club when I was 10 years old. But I started getting into films um, around this time and these films maybe would come on TV a year or two later. So this is the sort of mid to late 90s when these films are coming on TV in in Britain, maybe a year or two after release. Um, This is quite a formative age for me to be watching these films and you know buying a vhs uh, a year or so after release that kind of thing so um some of these films that we talked about i picked up at quite a young age and for, for myself i mean i don't want to take up our time but i, I often think of the this pre 9 11 or, or pre george bush winning election as kind of a is at that point that the 20th century has ended and um there's almost a exclamation mark um, on American cinema over the last hundred years with some of the films that are released around this time and particularly with something like The Matrix which is both forward thinking in terms of technology and how it's made but also what it's kind of looking forward to and and then something like uh, which is a film we're not going to talk about which is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia which is a really weird and flawed and wonderful and beautiful and fantastic and terrible film all, all at once and it's talks of like Sins of the Father and and um, some of the things it's grappling with and the like the shots of them all singing the same song and the frogs falling from, from, from the sky, it feels like that and the Matrix are, are kind of like, that's the end point of the 20th century on American cinema for me. But um, we should- Simon, probably... can, I, can, can I add one small thing to that? Yeah, go for it, Adam. I mean, because uh, in addition to the Fincher book this year, I wrote a book on Anderson last year and every every adjective you just piled on to- Magnolia, I think, fits. And I think that there's there's a bunch of candidates that year, you're right, for last film of the 20th century. And I think just to add something that's maybe less pop culturally specific, but film culturally specific, and it's mm-hmm. not a movie we're covering this week, 99 is the year that Stanley Kubrick dies, right? And I don't think that any filmmaker was chased so much in the 80s and 90s, and even now, but especially in the 80s and 90s, pertaining to technology and tone and control and a very masculine form of mastery like Kubrick was. And so in the in 99, a lot of the movies we're talking about, whether it's the, the kind of sci-fi uh, profundity of The Matrix and the tradition of 2001, or the apocalyptic satire of Fight Club, which is very strange Levian, right? Uh, or, or Magnolia, which again, you know, has Tom Cruise, the same year Cruise is in Eyes Wide Shut. These filmmakers are all chasing Kubrick and his death and Eyes Wide Shut being released on Christmas of that year 
and being seen by people on New Year's Eve and having all the holiday decor in it, um, it felt like a space was opening up for American cinema to sort of change. And like the title belt was now kind of vacant. Kubrick was the end of the 20th century, I think. And you could argue he's a filmmaker of the 19th century and that's a whole other discussion. But I think that when we talk about something ending and then something is starting up amidst that ending, uh, Eyes Wide Shut and, and Kubrick's death are a big, big part of some of that tone, I think. Fascinating. I, I never, never considered that, but that is definitely something um, I'm going to mull over. I'd also like to state just factually for the record that 99 also saw the release of the best film ever made, which was Galaxy Quest. So I think <laughs> we should just state that on record. Um before we, we get into the specific movies themselves, Vaughn, you're just going to quickly um, set us up on a history side of things as to where uh, America was to, to some degree during, during this time. Yes, I am, hopefully. Um, okay, so uh, talking about the 1990s in the US, we have a crisis of masculinity happening. Um, all of the major publications like the New York Times and Los Angeles Times and Playboy were were writing articles about this decline and even sometimes the death of masculinity throughout the decade. Um, this whole kind of idea comes from the fact that there was so much of the public consciousness that was focused on gender and sexuality from the 60s through the 90s. Um, but masculinity hadn't really been challenged directly in and of itself in a massive movement like feminist liberation or gay liberation had. So masculinity was kind of conflated for um, a lot of gender theorists and mainstream thinkers. Masculinity was almost conflated with, quote, the universal in earlier decades. And it's almost as if it was a default option that, that gender theorists left masculinity as, quote, unmarked, um, according to Judith Butler. So by the 90s, masculinity becomes marked, and it's now something that people are starting to question, um, and they're, they're visiting masculinity as a gender construct and a social construct, and what does it mean to be masculine is this new mainstream question going around in the 90s. So this is important context for the conversation we're about to have. Um, this crisis of masculinity is kind of surrounded by some political and cultural moments as well. Um, we've covered the 90s a lot on this podcast, especially with the Clinton year uh, trilogy. And with those in mind, like focusing on largely white, young and middle-aged men in the 1990s, we can look at a juxtaposition of white collar jobs and social upheaval. So on the one hand, we have this kind of sharp increase through the 80s and a plateauing in the 90s of like middle management positions and corporatization on a scale kind of unseen before then. Um, many people are now in cubicles on the daily. Men and women are in offices together and equated, um, not with their pay, but with their titles normally, or in a lot of cases rather. And masculinity in this kind of post-fem lib world uh, and especially masculinity of heterosexual men kind of feels threatened for a lot of them in this desexualized, sterile environment with kind of uh, fluorescent lighting and like the same color walls and cubicles and everything. 
so simultaneously, the, the economy was kind of on the uptick through the 90s and politics were towing a kind of party line of complacency with new Democrats and new liberalism. And again, we covered all of that in previous episodes on the Clinton years. So we have this kind of fiscal balancing emerging in the 90s and a plateauing, plateauing of employment for uh, white, young and middle aged men happening at the same time that gender theorists and the mainstream start to question what masculinity means. And the complacency of it all starts to kind of complicate the masculine identity. And here we see outbursts of kind of hyper-masculinity in social and cultural settings, especially in the mid to late 90s. Um, as we discussed in September, the WWE enters the attitude era, which is highlighting kind of lewdness and hypersexuality. We see violence and aggression portrayed as these kind of inspiring traits specifically targeted towards young people. Uh, we get a version of hypermasculinity in the extreme like muscling of wrestlers and their constant swearing and all of these things that seem like kind of quote unquote cool um, being targeted to young men specifically. In 1999, uh, we have several overswells of violence coming from this, this demographic of young white men. Um, we have Woodstock 99, happens in Rome, New York, as in homage to the 1969 festival. And it turns into this violent free-for-all almost with bonfires and infernos and there's an audio tower that's engulfed in flames. The concert promoters were inundated with lawsuits afterwards for negligence uh, and several accounts of dehydration and distress. There are numerous accounts of sexual violence that come out of this festival. Um, in 99, we also have the protests against the World Trade Organization Conference in Seattle that also turned into a riot when police arrived. Uh, there were protesters largely protesting peacefully. Um, a very small group of them started vandalizing and destroying property. Police and the National Guard showed up and it turned into a, a fairly large riot. Uh, 99 also saw the Columbine shooting in Colorado that kind of set off the still happening trend of um, mass school shootings in the US. So the 1990s, especially the late 1990s, saw this kind of extreme shift in masculinity that, that juxtaposes the kind of daily lives of, of men. These young white men were just in office buildings for a lot of their days and then went home and some of them turned very violent. And we see this in a lot of kind of cultural uh, and social upheavals throughout the 90s. Of course, it's not all um, all encompassing of masculinity in the 90s, but it is a kind of stark um, hallmark that we can point to of masculinity in the late 90s. So in a few words, the 1990s were full of contradictions and masculinity specifically was confused. Um, according to Brenton Malin, who in his book, um, American Masculinity Under Clinton, Popular Media and the, 90, and the 90s Crisis of Masculinity, 
He says that masculinity was, quote, caught up in contemporary arguments that critique the heterosexist, patriarchal, classist, racist values that have traditionally underwritten the standard picture of the, quote, real American man, end quote. So that's kind of where we're at in the 19, late 1990s with uh, masculinity specifically, culturally and socially. Have I missed anything, Simon? No, I mean, that sets us up absolutely perfectly for what we're about to discuss. Uh, as always, Vaughn, it's always a pleasure just to give you a topic and then let, let you research because that was, that was really insightful. So thank you for that. Um, that does move us on very nicely now onto the, the first film, which we're going to talk about, which is Fight Club. And um, Adam, this is obviously one of the, the, the films that you talk about in your latest book, Mind Games. Um, it is one of the most talked about and divisive and revered films of the last uh, 30 years. Can you tell us your own relationship to this film, Adam, and the films, the, the themes that are explored in this? And how, how have your... How did your thoughts on this film evolve as you were writing this book? Well, my 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 personal relationship to the film was one of great resistance, reluctance, and skepticism. Um, and I won't go into the the totally boring details of that, but it has to do with coming of age as wanting to be a cinephile and critic, and the film's reception and popularity and ubiquity being the sort of thing I felt I had to react against. It's interesting because it's a movie that's in theory against conformity and against norms and quite um, overtly, almost sort of ostentatiously subversive. And yet I didn't feel at the time like it was subverting anything. It seemed so tyrannically available. It seemed like an example of what the exact limits of American studio cinema are, which is you can wear subversion on your sleeve. And at the end of the day, you're sort of just, you know, a consumable mass market movie playing in 2000 theaters, trying to recoup a budget with a movie star. And that's both completely factually true and, you know, very reductive, but it felt like a movie to react against. I was trying to discover movies from other countries and other periods in history. And there was something about the way Fincher directed that, you know, I found really impressive and, and virtuosic and also kind of hateful, you know? And, and so a lot of the American directors and movies of that period that were coming, uh, not just coming of age, but <clears throat> coming to prominence, whether it was Anderson or, or Fincher or Spike Jones or Wes Anderson, I had skepticism towards. Um, now I have nostalgia for an American cinema that feels that live wire and that daring and that ambitious. And as Fincher's matured into the kind of filmmaker who I would want to write a whole book about and did, you know, my relationship to Fight Club changes. I see it as a very necessary step in his evolution, a movie that I'm glad I've gone back to and, and thought about. And the more I've read, whether it's reading more theory or just reading more fiction or, or, or reading more into the movie, you know, I've, I've turned around on it to an extent. I mean, Vaughn's summary of the 90s was so articulate and, and caught so many things. And I think that one thing that's maybe worth discussing that I'll throw out to the, the chat, which I talk about in the book too, Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote the book, said at the time, but he said so more retrospectively, that he felt in a literary context, there was nothing about male community, right? And there's a certain, you kind of want to roll your eyes at that grievance, you know, that he's reading things like the Joy Luck Club and, you know, feeling <laughs> feeling not oppressed, but but feeling jealous, you know, that, that there isn't that kind of subcultural or that kind of community thrust in literature for his demographic of, of I don't know, university educated white men. But you can feel that anxiety in the material 
in Fight Club and not just the longing for the community, but you know, a kind of panic about that community because in America, heroism is very rugged and individual. Masculinity is seen in that, those terms of individual mastery and anything collective has a kind of post-Cold War anxiety around it you know, whether it's about conformity or sort of, you know, God forbid you're getting into the territory of, of, of socialist or, or, or collectivist politics, uh, or it's just straight up gay panic. You know, the idea of a bunch of guys together. It's a thin line between hanging with the guys, which David Fincher had done a bunch of commercials for Budweiser before Fight Club that took that idea and ran with it. In fact, the dialogue in those Bud ads where they're talking about which historical figures they'd want to play sports against or 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 mm. more debate. You know, it's right, same dialogue as Fight Club. Thin line between hanging with the guys and beating the shit out of the guys and worrying that you're attracted to the guys. And I think that if you really pull Fight Club apart, and I mean the movie, not the book, because I think the movie improves on the book in a lot of ways, it's in a very articulate, interrogatory and really smart dialogue with all these things. It's a very dialectical movie. These things are always in balance within it. The, 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 the tensions between those things, between the individual and the collective, between hyper straight and, you know, tremendously gay, between, you know, misandry and, and misogyny, uh, they're, 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 they're all sort of bristling and, 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 and festering and pummeling under the service of this movie. And the one other late 90s trend I think I want to throw to you guys to talk about with Fight Club is you have to think about the, the inception of publications like Adbusters and Vice, right? Which is this kind of hip, edgy, consumerist critique, marketing critique, um, you know, the language of advertisement being turned back against itself, which is a huge part of David Fincher's auteurism because he's a former commercial and music video director who mastered that language and is then constantly trying to find ways to, to evolve it and apply it to cinema. Uh, and he's also a commercial director whose commercials were always spectacular because you remembered the concept more than the product. And sometimes the product was almost incidental to what he was staging you know, visually within the 30 second ad format. So when I think about Fight Club, both at the time and retrospectively, it's so of a piece with that sort of intellectually driven, collegiate aimed, you know, uh, satire, even some of the very, very early internet era satire is, is, is part of that mix too. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, at the end of uh, this period, um, well, Robert Putnam released his book, Bowling Alone, which is a book about the collapse and the revival of the American community at the uh, in the in the 1990s, and I do think that the, you know that there's a particular there are strands of masculinity in this movie, many uh, various strands of masculinity, but but the um, the main character of this movie is a character who does have a sort of the aesthetic of a successful life, right? Um, but is basically alone and he's trying to find a community in a number of clubs to deal with people with diseases uh many of them who are dying and 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 that's how he's trying to find community and he's uncomfortable with with other people being there who aren't also dying but so so you go from that beginning of trying to find a community there to 
his establishment of a community via his own uh, his own sort of uh, interaction with uh, Tyler, who's a character that comes, she comes out of his head, and then the creation of the fight clubs that that emerges uh, in his community, but goes out all around America. And then he goes from state to state looking for himself, but the, the, the audience member finds out that he's created this community for all of these men who, again, are like him. They're, they're sort of uh, middle-class white men and, um, and the proxies of, 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 of that. And, and they are all in relatively comfortable, successful careers, but they are finding not only that this kind of um, uh, corporate environment is, is feminizing, it's, you know, it's, it's removing their power, it's moving their selected status as breadwinners, but it is also, it's, it's isolating them essentially what is, is what it is and they're trying to find community uh through through the fight clubs as well even even in in the scenes in this movie where people lose the fights but you know they, they found something be- together despite losing you know and the, and he you know says people become heroes when they win but there isn't this kind of penalty for losing in these fights it's it's a um, it's almost like they can't cry together. They can't start a book club together, but they can fight together. I probably would. I would. It's a weird movie to add, but I think you probably would add Goodfellas to this kind of this kind of dialectic as well, because people who watch that movie, you know, they or they, they want to be gangsters, but really they want a club of of guys like to to hang around with. And I and I think that's I think that's so central to this. Um, I don't think that's so central to this movie. And I think it's so central to the the, the zeitgeist as, as well uh, in, in in this movie. Obviously, there are a number of of other things, you know, the 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 the, the, the explicit violent tendencies, the the need for to come together for for violent means, uh, the the terrorism of this, the the sense of entitlement um, that grows out actually of the terrorism, you know, where they're kidnapping people and saying, well we're the people who do all these things for you. So, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you shouldn't fuck with us because if we're upset, then the whole society is going to fall, fall to pieces as well. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it, it tackles masculinity, uh, the, the, the loss of community, the loss of status um, um, for a number of di- different directions uh, as, as well. And, and, and I think, and I do think it's a, it's a, it's a great movie for, for really pulling out a lot of the, the the cultural you know the cultural zeitgeist you know it's like it's, it's it's a it's a cultural work it's 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 fiction but but it, but it really has a a really higher sub subtext there and and yeah and I think it's a really great movie. Can I uh, can I you're saying about pulling things out? I, I sorry, Von Regan, I I didn't want to interrupt, but there was one very small little thread I wanted to pull out from what uh, from what Toby just said. Echo hey, frog. Well, like, for example, small little thing, you have Fincher, such a pop culturally savvy director. So you talk about the support groups and one of the support groups, which is a support group for men, uh, the Edward Norton character is swallowed up in an embrace by by the, a character played by Meatloaf, who just passed away. Mm-hmm. Right. This is why I thought about it. Casting this parody of 70s male virility like this is the guy who goes all the way during paradise during the dashboard light get all these hits in the 90s which are like the most alpha male expression of 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 sexual love you know like i would do anything for love you know i'd I'd lie for you and that's the truth 
casting him as someone who's not only a member of this emotional, you know, male support group, he's swollen up from his treatment. So he's being referred to in the voiceovers, having these sort of pendulous, the narrator calls them, you know, bitch tits, which feminize him, but of course they can't sustain, he can't sort of nurse with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, He, you know, his voice has been rendered really high. He's been completely feminized and, and, and emasculated. Uh, and then he's literally the member of Tyler Durden's cabal, the space monkeys, who's kind of shot dead. So, you know, killing meatloaf as a symbol of a kind of certain kind of pop cultural masculinity that's been killed and needed to be avenged. It's something that's in the material. I mean, that that character exists in the book. But when the movie casts a rock deity like meatloaf and plays with his image that way and plays with his death on screen that way there's a kind of intuitive reading that happens with a lot of the audience where they may not even realize the levels that the movie is working on them on but it's part of that mix that 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 fincher brings to it as a filmmaker everything in that movie from the casting to the iconography to the cutting of his speeches like like shoe commercials or the use of the ikea catalog as a a 3d environment that the norton character is living in before subconsciously he decides to blow it up it it's not just that the themes place it in the mid 90s and this idea of the masculine zeitgeist the texture of the movie itself is both part of that like a formative part of it and critique of it at the same time absolutely for myself i watched again ahead of this uh, show and I think what everything you guys have touched upon is is completely accurate. For, for me, kind of what stood out was the this idea of uh, capitalism and the corporate nature of America post Reagan, and where even the people who quote unquote won, i.e., the sort of young, uh, relatively well off uh, white men who have comfortable jobs, um, they have been, you know, enslaved to this um, this life which is lonely and which they are unable to find any real substance to. And their answer is to, to try and break free of it in, in some way and to try and form some communal bond. And by the end of it, they are, you know, trying to literally um, bring an end to or bring an end to and or crash part of capitalism. And um, I, I think it, it's telling that something like uh, Mr. Robot came around you know, 20 years later and is so heavily inspired by Fight Club and the themes that are touched upon there. And um, it's very much the, the, the next step in, in, in sort of, you, you could actually take as a case study, whereas Mr. Robot, I think, started out as a, as a film script that then turned into a TV series. I think you could quite as easily just see it as a, as a sequel to Fight Club and everything that has come about since with this idea of um, corporate ownership of, of American life uh, from the 90s onwards and this um, feeling of, of isolation and need to fight back against um, the, you know, the owners of credit cards and uh, the people who are keeping us down and that kind of thing. Um, I'm aware we've probably only got about 30, 35 minutes left of Adam's time and I'm aware we only sort of one film into this. So either we can um, keep going at the speed and try and get through all we can, or we can kind of move it forward one at a time. Or, or if we so wish, we can pick and choose, pick and choose the films to talk about while we have Adam here. Um, the next film I had to talk about was uh, to talk about the Truman Show and Matrix, in part because they're different types of films, but they both relate to this um, 
false reality that's around our central character and a, a literal breaking through of, 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 of a reality wall and how that sort of ties into this, this idea of these, these office, office workers, um, male, white office workers, again, trying to, to sort of find something else beyond the world that has been prescribed to them. Um, Adam, can I just get your, your general thoughts on the, those two films and how they depict their false realities and how your relationship um, with those films have maybe changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think the Truman Show... Um what's nostalgic about the Truman show is the idea that the dominant mode of viewership would be television, right? You know, that's sort of the, the, the difference I think is that the Truman show is a movie that was, that was perceiving something about TV happening in the late 20th, and early 21st century, which is that shift towards the reality and the, and the quotidian, but where we really saw that idea of people becoming stars, their own lives was on the internet. So like, it's predictive of that. And, uh, you know, plays interestingly with Jim Carrey's star persona. It's such an exaggerated over-the-top kind of comedy star. And here he's tasked with playing, you know, the, the, the embodiment of a kind of everyman. And also an everyman who's not meaning to play to the camera, which is the opposite of what, what Jim Carrey does. And then the, the Matrix is more, I think, overtly philosophical and mystical. It casts Keanu Reeves, who's a wonderfully receptive actor. He's like that old... Zen cone about, you know, a cup, a cup is most useful when it's empty. You know, that's a compliment to Keanu Reeves. He's just such an emptied out actor. So he, he's perfect for this parable about supreme knowledge and about kind of achieving sort of mastery in this virtual space. I mean, I think the Truman Show, there's an image at the end of the movie of the sailboat that he's in mm. bumping up against the limits of the set, right? And within the movie, it's meant to be this profound moment. He's come to the end of his existence, but it's also symbolic to me of how limited the Truman Show is, which is it's, it's really a movie that doesn't have much resonance beyond its own running time or its own frame. I don't think people can return to it and pull much more out of it. It, it says a lot of what it's about. The Matrix, I think, is an endlessly discussable and analyzable and sort of culturally downloadable text and the way that Lana Wachowski played with all that in the recent Matrix movie which is all about reclaiming certain of that film subtexts and meanings like the idea of being red-pilled like the idea of you know different kinds of online communities and 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 different themes of 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 of, of transsexuality and and, and and trans identity you know it, it doesn't just show the movie staying power that it has three sequels but it shows that it's just one of the most spacious pop cultural texts there is. And I think you could you could offer five or 10 competing interpretations of the matrix that could be you know persuasive depending on how articulate you are. Whereas I think the Truman Show, there's really kind of one read and it's in the movie's dialogue already. Uh, Vaughn, I was gonna ask your thoughts on those two films because I believe you only just watched them very recently ahead of this show. Um, so can, can I yeah. get your, your thoughts on, on those two films? Yeah, so I, I know that it's it's a crime as a film historian that I watched The Matrix for the first time on Friday night, but um, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, and with both of these films, I, I live in society. I know what they're about. I knew the kind of storylines of them. I knew what was going to happen in both of these films just from being alive in the Western world. But... Um, actually watching it was like a it was a very very interesting experience um with the matrix i i do agree there are a thousand different interpretations you can take 
um, of that film. And as I was watching it, I was actually getting very uncomfortable um, and disliking it very much because I know how it's been used by the far right in recent years. And it made me very uncomfortable to watch the film for the first time. Um, by the end of it, I, I enjoyed it a lot more and I could kind of push those thoughts to the side. But um, I, I do think that it's an endlessly interpretable film. I don't know if that's a word, but. Um, Have you seen Lily Wachowski calling it a, a trans allegory before? Have you, I don't know if you. you um, yes, yeah, I, I, that was the main thing I knew about The Matrix actually. Um, and I absolutely understand how and why, especially now having watched it. Um, I think it's especially interesting that Agent Smith continues to dead name Neo um, mm-hmm. and that that's kind of the pinnacle of it. I think that's absolutely fascinating and a, a really interesting kind of inclusion in the film. Um, and I think it works really well. And that made me even angrier that the far right has has taken so many elements of the film when it's clearly not created for that that purpose. But I mean, audience reception theory, everyone gets everyone gets to have their own opinion and interpretation of a film. So fair, but also it made me uncomfortable. Um, the Truman Show, though, I absolutely loved that movie, and I'm mad I hadn't seen it before because I thought it was near perfect. Um, And I find it interesting that you just said there's kind of one main message or interpretation, Adam, because as I was watching it, I was thinking about all of the different ways that I could analyze this film um, for different things. And and I don't know if the dome does signify the limits of of the Truman Show for me. Um, I I think there are a lot of kind of human interpretations that we can take on the Truman Show and different avenues that we can take it in, um, in religious ways with him literally walking on water or the, the visual of him walking on water um, to ascend these stairs and, and leave that his, his world where he is kind of a reborn second coming of Jesus where, where somebody has constructed a safe space for him. I think that's a very interesting idea. And questioning um, Ed Harris's character as as a father and God figure. And what does that kind of imply? Is that a resonance of masculinity for the late 90s that that white men saw the world as something that they could create for themselves? Um, I think there, there are kind of endless interpretations that we could take from that. I mean, I think that when I say it's in the text, I mean, at one point, the Ed Harris character says, cue the sun, right? Which, yes. is, uh, which is stolen from the stuntman, the Peter O'Toole character as a film director playing God, the same way the walk on water thing is stolen from Peter Sellers in being there. I mean, the Truman Show is pretty brazen in its borrowings, which is a postmodern thing. And there's a fine line, I think, between homage and, and theft, the same way that Forrest Gump stole a lot of that stuff. But I think you're right that, you know, there's a parable here about, you know, creating the world in, in the image of or deference or perception of a kind of white movie star, except I would argue that maybe I shouldn't say that there's only one way to interpret the Truman Show, but I think that those those interpretations are, are outside the text because it becomes like a piece of interpretable material. Whereas I think in The Matrix, the filmmakers had a lot more control and I think a lot more variance and, and intellectual flexibility in what they were putting out there. I mean, the, the, the Matrix is a, a, a very well-read movie 
even before well-read people kind of descend on it to pick it apart. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the, the Truman Show is a pretty, uh, it, it's certainly pretentious, like it's a big Hollywood would-be Oscar sort of movie. I think that a lot of what there is to pull out of it, at least for me, then has to do with how smart the viewer is, like yourself, as opposed to maybe how much the movie has on its mind. It just felt so, at the time, packaged for prestige, right? Whereas even The Matrix, which cost more and had a bigger release pattern, has the risk of seeming like sci-fi exploitation and being dismissed because it's working in, in genre. I mean, The Truman Show is the same kind of movie as American Beauty is in the sense that it's trying to be a statement about the country and to win awards. Um, whereas Fight Club and Matrix are no less commercial, but there's a more of an element of danger to them maybe. I don't know if that trucks with you guys. That's interesting. I, I never really thought about the Truman Show in, in those terms. I mean, it, it is certainly true that, you know, it is a, a studio production with one of the biggest film stars in the world at the time, at, at front and centre. Um, I suppose I'd always been a bit more generous with the film because it was one of those enjoyable films that you grew up with and actually had something to say, even if it was on, on surface. Um, I watched it again a, few, a couple of months ago and found it very enjoyable just as a piece of cinema to watch for for two hours um, and no point did it drag or or did I feel that I was uh, getting sort of less out of it than I had previously so I definitely take on and agree with some of the things you're saying Adam although I may be uh, more receptive to (laughs) its big budget um Hollywood give me an award approach that you describe. Maybe I'm just more generous uh, in receiving this particular film than you are. Should we uh, move on to our next couple of films? In fact, one of them you just you talked about there, Adam, which was American Beauty. So the, the next next two I had down were, yeah. were Office Space and American Beauty, which um, are kind of different <laughs> different in tone, and um, they they, um, they they both share some similarities from the point of an office worker getting a new perspective on life after um, some initiate thing initiates change in their life. Um, I was wondering what, what are your, what are your thoughts on those two films and the way they're, they're using their characters um, to sort of tell the story of, of, of change within this, this male white uh, office male worker. Well, I have a horrified memory of seeing a, uh... American Beauty with colleagues at the Toronto Film Festival where I was very young and they were older. I mean, these are boomer era colleagues, you know, staff writers. And at the end of the film, and we've all seen the film recently, right? Like we've all watched American Beauty and remember what happens in it beyond the, the poster and the roses and all that. Cause people sometimes forget the actual narrative, right? We, we're, we're, we're all on the same yeah. page with what happens in the film. I, I watched it again recently and recently. was su- surprised just how, um, upfront it was with the 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 particular person they used to to change Kevin Spacey's idea on the world um yeah I mean yeah. The, the my colleague with the, the credits were rolling and everyone gave it a standing ovation because that's what you do like this is a film that is so bad you can only give it an academy award for best picture that's how bad American Beauty is it deserves the Oscar that it won because that's how bad it is but <laughs> but the the the, the crowd was cheering and he was like pumping his fists. And I remember seeing this guy. I mean, I still see him around, but at the time he was that much younger, you know, 20 years younger, but a boomer. This is someone who was the same age 
It's a Kevin Spacey character. He was pumping his fist and he was applauding. And I thought, what the fuck are you applauding? I mean, what of your experience do you see here that, that feels affirmative to you? I mean, I'm being really crude when I say this, but like, it's not even like the suburban dad like gets to have sex with a teenage girl in this movie. I mean, it's too sentimental and safe to even let him do that because that would violate any connection to the audience. He has the impulse and then because he's a dad and because the movie is very safe, it, it pulls back just in time for him to be killed by like a closeted neo-Nazi neighbor. I mean, the film is insane. <laughs> it's, it's an insane film. And it's been really gratifying to see its reputation slip since 1999, because any retrospective writing on American Beauty has to do with how awful it is and how, what was the, what was it about this particular combination of elements at the time, this like sub David Lynch suburban satire mm -hmm. and this sitcom-y arrangement with the smiling gay neighbors and the frustrated, uh, you know, you know, woman played play by Annette Benning having this affair. I mean, it's one of the most sexist female characters I can ever remember seeing in a movie. And just, you know, the, the, the catatonia of the Alice and Janney character married to this, again, the, the closeted Nazi plate collector general. And when you say it out loud, it's laughable. I mean, like, what was it that seemed like a profound vision? And what was it that made boomers in particular feel empowered? Is it just as simple as there's a job where he tells a scene where he tells his boss to like you know fuck himself and plays the guess who and orders fast food i mean it's insane and i wonder because i've felt that this movie is nuts since i saw it i i wonder if this arrangement of elements struck you guys as similarly just bewildering i mean office space to me makes sense as a satire and mike judge's view of america is consistent in his cartoons like king of the hill and yeah. and beavis and butthead and, and live action I mean, he's a coherent social commentator i think but american beauty is nuts yeah i it was one of those films again i would have watched probably 11 or 12 so your your my viewpoint on the world hadn't really formed at that point super cool simon the cool, well, cool yeah. simon as yeah. we've established on this podcast i was a very cool 12 year old um so uh, yeah I, I would have watched this it would have come on tv when i was 11 or 12 um and you know, there's sort of seductive elements of the film at that age where you're seeing things like the, the, the scene where the, the Annette Benning character is driving along and she's kind of bombastic because she's kind of got the world going the way she wants it. And then she turns onto her drive and her husband, Kevin Spacey, has bought the car and everything kind of comes down on her face. And you can kind of see that she's immediately defeated by the, the Kevin Spacey character again. So my relationship to the film is one kind of not really knowing how to process it at a younger age and then living with it in the culture initially to begin with there was a lot of talk about oh you know the beauty of showing the, the bag in the wind and all, all this kind of stuff which is kind of really built up and then as the years go by as Adam said the cultural think pieces about this film have just been ripping it to shreds and it's not a film I'd revisited in a very long time so I watched it again a couple of weeks ago and I was kind of taken aback by lots. I mean, I remembered a good chunk of the film, but I guess I just, this um, predatory nature of the Kevin Spacey character right from the start of the film and his infatuation with the, the, the teenage girl and, and that kind of core being, that, that, that core central relationship between those two being the driving factor for his, his change in perspective and you know telling his boss to finally go fuck himself and all that kind of stuff. It was... 
I almost find it too weird to critique. I almost don't have the words to say it's a bad film, even though it very well might be, just because I was so confounded by it. I just, I, I would certainly wouldn't have been watching it now if I'd been of this age watching it in '99. I'd, I like to hope I wouldn't be applauding it, but at the same time, I don't think I'd be swearing at the screen either. I think I would have just walked out in a daze, kind of not sure how to process any of the sort of batshit decisions that are made in the film. Well, when I saw this movie, um, I was taken aback by the Christopher Cooper character, mm. the the gay uh, ex-military member who lives next door. I, I, I did find the, the ending of the movie quite arresting. And I have to say that uh, in sort of 10 years since I'd seen the movie, that's the thing that stayed with me about this movie. Apart from, I think probably the the way the movie uses lighting um, to sort of tease out the the sexual um, or the, the the possible sexual flirtation between you know an adult male and a, a a young girl that that's really what I remember about the movie. And I remember the the end of the movie and being someone who was. You know, I wasn't 10 like uh, Simon, but being someone who was like 17 when I saw the movie and being someone who had some relationship with a kind of kind of repressive culture. I did feel that that was kind of a a statement to make because you did have this, you know, this this guy in his suburban life. Um, Actually, this guy's a little bit different from a lot of the other characters because he's actually upper middle class um and uh and i you know pulling away from the corporate culture and then bubbling next door to him is this 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 person who's who's really a reflection of 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 a, of a period maybe even a little bit earlier you know this is like a a little bit like a silent generation figure who has a particular view of sexual relationships and uh, homosexuality and and an evolving culture that is so remote and so different looking at it now it, it doesn't look like it's it's making a a strong critique right now because the, i think the characters are drawn quite shallowly but back then i did feel that it was and yeah. um and so looking at this movie now i can say that i did not like and could not engage with almost any character in this movie i found all of them uh, his daughter, who's kind of like a gothy chick, I found all of her concerns and her reflections on her p- parents ungenerous and kind of uh, narcissistic and absurd. Her parents are quite similar as well. No one seems to be communicating in any way. No one can reflect on any anything that's happening in any way. No one's generous to any anyone. It's it's uh, if this is the if this is the critique of um, of American society, I don't think there's anyone it really touches, really, because everyone can look at this movie and say that you know it has something's wrong here, but it doesn't it doesn't really reach into anyone's lived experience because the, the characters are drawn so so extremely and so so poorly, I think, hmm. uh, in in this movie. Vaughn, do you have any any thoughts on American Beauty? I have so many thoughts on American Beauty but I will keep it brief. All Everything you guys have just said is very, very interesting to me. Um, I, 
And uh, for, for several minutes now, I've just been thinking about like, is it a bad movie? And I think it is a bad movie, actually. <laughs> um, I am not as cool as Simon, but I did see it when I was like 12 or 13 um, for the first time. And then I think the second time I saw it was when I showed a friend in college and she was so freaked out by Kevin Spacey's character that we just never spoke of American beauty again um, in undergrad. But yeah, all of these things. It's very interesting. Um, oh, I don't uh, think you it, can. Uh, sorry, sorry Bonner, I was going to say we could probably do the whole series on the six, six films we've picked out. But um, yes, it, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Sorry, on you go. I was just going to say, um, very quickly, I don't think that you can kind of like cheer for anyone in this film. I think they're all pretty terrible. Um, and I, I don't find anyone that I relate with either. I remember when I saw it the first time, I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen because I was a child and yes. had no idea. And I was like, whoa, adult things are happening and I'm watching it kind of thing. Yep. But then yep. watching it in college, I was like, the fuck was that? <laughs> like, why did I think that was that good? Um, I don't think any of it is particularly inspiring in any way I th or inspired. Um, mm. When I was the first time I saw it, when I was uh, like 12 or 13, I was so shocked that Chris Cooper's character was gay. And then when I was an older person watching it, I was like, oh, no, that tracks. That kind of makes sense throughout the whole film. And I think. I don't know, I think it really depends on when you see this film, what what period of your life you're in, that it is either good or it's just not at all. But, yeah. uh, but, at the, but, at, but at the risk of drawing it out because it's important i mean you guys are social historians you're you know you're 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 not just smart people in the present tense when you're smart about this period i go back to the question i'm asking because i remember it. this is where i agree with with what one just it depends on the age you're at so why is it that the largely grown-up whether intellectually grown-up i mean <laughs> physically grown-up cohort of film critics academy voters adult moviegoers and the person I'm talking about in my screening, the older salaried newspaper critic, not just subjectively, why do they like it? What are they responding to? Ooh, what, I, have, I think I have yeah, a social answer. I mean, I mean, because I'll just say like, you say no one to root for. This could be the same terrible movie in every way. And if the Kevin Spacey character actually had sex with uh, Mina Suvari's character, I'm not rooting for it. And especially given Kevin Spacey's history since then, it's just disgusting. Yes. But imagine if the movie had the balls to alienate its audience to that degree, right? Not just to say you yeah. can project beauty onto a bag in the wind and that belongs to you, but here's a character who acts on the thing that we've been playing with and making playful and joking and innuendo laden but he was to actually you know act on it and then be killed for it it wouldn't win awards and it has to do with the idea of something that seems to be dangerous but is ultimately so incredibly safe and sentimental that i think is what those grown-ups were responding to so my my kind of social cultural response to that specifically thinking about the late 90s and and who these people would be being grown-ups then i'm guessing probably um around age 40 is that the age group that we're talking for film critics ab and ab absolutely yeah okay so so people who were in their 40s in the late 90s uh were in their kind of 30s in the 80s 
and they were teenagers in the 60s or late 60s. And a lot of those people, this is massive generalizations and stereotyping, and I'm definitely aware that I'm doing that. But a lot of people who were teenagers in the 60s were either curious about or engaging with kind of hippie culture. And by the 1980s, uh, with kind of rampant um, corporatization happening and this this swelling of middle management positions, uh, all of those or many of the kind of hippie-esque teenagers from the late 60s are now kind of being forced into these corporatized jobs and they're quote unquote selling out. And I think that same mentality of having a, a bit of rebellion in your youth, in your teenage years, and then kind of being drained of it in the 80s in this corporate world where you're you're trying to look for masculine figures that you identify with and you you have this idealized vision of kind of Gordon Gecko in Wall Street in 87 and you have Arnold Schwarzenegger and like Sylvester Stallone you have all these hyper masculine figures in the 80s trying to balance out the uh the kind of juxtaposition of of this this cultural thing that we're talking about here in the 90s when it plateaus out it's new in the 80s so you have a, a hyper masculinization and a hypersexuality in the 80s in a lot of media that these ex hippies are kind of grappling onto but then by the 90s we're actually exploring what is what is masculinity what is hypersexuality in association to masculinity and Hollywood's questioning all of these things. So those people who were teens in the sixties in their thirties and the eighties, and are now in their forties, very comfortable in their corporatized positions or in the kind of mainstream uh, middle-aged kind of concept of having security in your finances, but no real rebellion anymore that you had in your youth. I think that's the cohort who would have reacted to American beauty and been like, we all have these kind of fantasies and these, these, these nostalgic moments of reminiscing about our rebellious and sexually liberated youth, but we haven't felt it in so long. And Kevin, I, I think kind of you can, uh, of that. I think you can probably break it down a little bit more because these are film critics as well. Right. So the, mm -hmm. the, the criticisms of uh, yuppie culture, and the engagement with hippie culture in, in one's youth comes from a particular stream of American society. Many people were happy as yuppies. Many people, you know, most people voted for Reagan and, and, and all this. But these are, you know, film critics, um, people who are interested in literature, the humanities, who, are, who might have a kind of rebellious side to them, even though they don't express it in their, you know, in their work or in their everyday lives demographically they're cut out a little bit and I think they can see the Kevin Spacey character as a cipher for them as Vaughn has, has been saying as someone who is kind of un, kind of understands that the, the lives that they're living aren't existentially um, satisfying for them you know even though uh, Kevin Spacey and the movie itself can't draw that out properly and can't offer interesting characters or or unique critique because it does it on a surface level. They're there for it, I think, and I think that's why they they really engage with this movie. And I also think that things about um, Kevin Spacey's relationship with uh, a young girl aren't as I don't think they're as explosive uh, twenty years ago as they are today. Because I think, uh, and you know, the 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 
the profession of film criticism has become more female writing generally you know in, in all spheres has become more female and um those and then again the sort of the christopher cooper uh sort of implicit uh homosexuality these kinds of things that seem cheap and john you know sort of genre fodder and redundant now but i don't think they would have to to to, to those people i i know obviously adam uh, knew many of those people and has a more intimate uh, relationship with them and sort of is closer to them but but i do think that yeah i think i think we're, we're dealing with uh as one has said you know a, a demographic of people from from a particular time and place where the surface uh, parts of this movie would have been would have been interesting and uh they would have seen as this this movie is challenging i think i mean vaughn's analysis i think was so apt you know in terms of answering that question about why collectively generationally people might respond but you know not but i would just say and and this could either be a way of leading into the other two movies or just you know getting it back to this this larger sociological territory that you know you guys cover on this podcast there's something about american beauty that differentiates it from all the other movies we're talking about which is its title right Mm -hmm. when you throw american at the front of something i mean this podcast is impressions of america right You, you throw america in front of something you are you are signaling, I think, in a very pretentious way that you mean for this to be a kind of totalizing allegory or a totalizing metaphor. You see that in a novel like American Psycho. You see it in a rock opera like American Idiot. The specificity gets lost, and it's in the service of a kind of general, uh, a kind of general allegory or a kind of general commentary. And I think what maybe feels most millennial about American Beauty, not just the study of masculinity and gender and the integration of like video cameras and surveillance into it because it's got a whole bunch of stuff going on it's not like empty it's very populated with with very zeitgeisty things i mean that bag blowing in the wind is like a proto-viral video right it's never uploaded online exactly but it's viewed like a kind of internet era viral video in the movie i think what the most millennial thing about it is that it's trying to sum up and I find the fact that the movie tries to sum up what the situation in America is by focusing only on its most gilded, gated, privileged, white kind of community speaks to its industry and award culture popularity and also kind of how useless it is as a barometer of literally anything. Yeah. Um, we've only got five minutes left of your time, Adam. Very quickly, um, do you see yourself ever investing in a jump to conclusions, Matt? Is that something you can see yourself doing at any point in the future? Investing in a what, sorry? Do you ever see yourself investing in a jump to conclusions, Matt, from, um, I don't know if you remember, an office space? Oh, no, I I just didn't hear what you said. No, I can't. No, I I, I can't imagine that. And I do think that, uh, you know, office space is a very funny movie, maybe because uh, it's not called American office. You know, it's more of a ground level, uh, more of a ground level, you know, character study that eventually expands into a kind of work culture uh, critique. And a lot of those jokes kind of hold up. I think they hold up better than like the Dilbert comic strip does, for instance, and not just because Scott Adams has become whatever he's become. Yeah, there's a separate conversation to be had on that, I think. Um, Very quickly, um, the final film we had down here was being John Malkovich. Um, Can you just very give your thoughts very quickly on, on the film and how maybe that would tie in and maybe Charlie Kaufman, who is such a unique and fascinating um, creator of work, how, how you yeah. think his 
this well, particular John, film ties into to what we've been discussing. Well, being John Malkovich is all about wanting to be famous, right? Sure. And it gets there in a very sideways way. It's a funny kind of parallel with the Truman Show because it's about that idea of kind of of, of being front and center in the public eye. And in the case of the Truman Show, he doesn't know he's a star. And in the case of being John Malkovich, the hyper consciousness of kind of knowing that you're that you're famous, you're almost kind of adjective of, of, of yourself, you're, you're, you're sort of a persona. And then what happens when someone tries to enter into that consciousness, what the John Cusack character ends up doing is John Malkovich stops being an actor and starts being a puppeteer, right? Which is mm-hmm. a pretty funny, a pretty funny metaphor, but you see the media culture where people are like, oh, John Malkovich has now become this large scale, uh, you know, you know, puppeteer without knowing that he's literally had his brain hijacked. And I think that there's a lot in being John Malkovich that's not just funny because it's deadpan and slapstick and brilliantly directed, but you know a certain amount of 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 prescience about you know projecting ourselves into other people's experiences or, or consciousness as a substitute for our own, and certain kinds of video games and certain kinds of larger role playing you know you know game constructs that the movie anticipates i actually think of all the movies we've mentioned even though we're mentioning it last other than maybe fight club i think it's the one from 99 that holds up the best but i just find it very funny it's a sense of humor thing yeah absolutely and i love i particularly love charlie coffin's work when it's directed by spike jones um yeah. just on a personal uh level my uh i prefer that i prefer kaufman's uh, work through that lens um we only have a couple minutes left now um I'm wondering, should we let you go now, Adam, or is there anything you would like to uh, quickly kind of add on on the, the general topic um, before we let you go? And then we can just kind of wrap up uh, once uh, once you've headed off to your, your everyday life. I mean, I mean, again, it'd be maybe a, a, a prompt for you guys that I'd sort of like to you know like to stick around in here. I mean, you know, you came up with the the, the concept and the groupings of the you know, came in the concept and the groupings of the movies. I mean, do you think that it'd be possible to have this same conversation with a, 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 a I don't know, a, 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 a representative range of, of, of pop cultural, you know, products now? I mean, people talk about the year 1999 as being quite momentous. And I wonder if that momentousness is only really perceivable in hindsight, or if you think we're living in a particularly fertile moment to answer these these questions or, or ask them of our kind of pop cultural products. I don't think people care about movies anymore. No, and so I've, I don't, I, so I don't think movies would be where we would look. I think that's exactly right. I think there was, there was a time where movies and particularly adult dramas were the sort of central focus of um, culture. And I don't think we're there anymore for a number of reasons. Uh, you only have to look at, what's happening in cinema today i mean there are still movies being made but so much of it today is a division between smaller movies independent movies quite often the ones that are actually now favorites for for oscars or or in those kind of contentions up against the 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 highest grossing films of the year which are all you know ip films and, and disney blockbusters and there's always a i think you can nostalgia if that's a word anything and um, so there will be a time where we'll look back and go do you remember that run of four um you know avengers films were wasn't that cinema at its best um but i, I do also think there's a element of you know four people who all love, love film talking about a time prior to um you know spider-man and batman and everything else taking over culture and even before that there was also a sense uh, or there was a movement in cinema where there was a, a more of a monoculture where 
a particular film uh, in the 80s or 90s, you know, something like Terminator 2 might be the biggest film in the world that will run for, you know, weeks or months on end. And I suppose we got that with uh, Avengers Endgame, but that's obviously a very different animal because of the, the nature of, of the Disney product. So um, I, I don't specifically have an answer to your question, but I suppose that the way I would say is I, I, I'm not sure we could really frame it around cinema the way that it, for today, the way that we could in the 90s. Yeah, which is a shame, I think, because it's 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 always fun when the you have a film and it, it's a cipher and the, the critical culture is able to analyze it based on what's happening uh, now. It becomes a, a dialogue, a way to to understand ourselves. You know, now if you have really small movies, some of them actually are doing that, and if and um, and critics are still doing that, but it's it's too small of a vacuum to really have the kind of impact that that it would. Uh, previously i think but then if you go back to the 1990s i would say definitely in the 1970s and 1980s critics people like pauline kale were analyzing movies like that you know movies like um you know the graduate or taxi driver or, or all these kinds of movies but into the 1990s they from the reading that we, we've done that there there was this culture of you know, um, criticizing masculinity, this this reactionary um, sort of laddish culture, and you know the new man versus the lad, and all, and all the all this stuff, uh, all this stuff happening at the time. And then there were these movies. So I do think that um, although we look at 1999, is you know we we have the hindsight to be able to to critique 1999 and say that these movies you know were central to to social criticism and the culture of the time. I do think that because of what was actually happening at the time, these movies are kind of a reflection of a, of a dialogue between art and, um, and criticism, I would say. On any final thoughts on, on this question for Adam? Uh, um, the question is, is, can we have the same conversation about films today, right? Yes, I, I think I have that, that was, right. I think that was what Adam. Oh, or, or 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 which ones we would or which ones we would have, or more the uh, whether the impetus to have the discussion is always spurred by a kind of distance, right? Because it's one thing right. to stake, it's one thing to stake territory in the new and risk jumping the gun, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's another to to risk being passed by before you really get your interpretive. Uh, claim made on something and it seems like right. 1999 is endlessly returnable for editors who commission pieces and for the, the the big the big weird undulating thing we call the discourse it hasn't gotten tired of that period at least when we're talking about movies right uh, and i, I think right. oh sorry, sorry Adam, i was going to say von von is actually doing her phd on uh sort of post-war american um christmas film so obviously looking at a period of time is particular of interest to you, Vaughn, I'd say. Post-war American Christmas film? Yes. That's awesome. That's Thank so, you. That's I think so, so cool. too. Yeah, we can we can talk about it later. <laughs> um, I am I am analyzing Christmas films and and how they kind of um uh present anti-communism in the post-war decade. That's um, that's that's amazing. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, this is a really fascinating question and I'm really kind of like ruminating on it. I, I think, I think you, you hit it right on Adam that there, I think you do need distance, um, in your question. I think you do need distance because 
we can, as you say, interpret films that come out now. I just wrote uh, an analysis in December of the 2019 film Klaus and how Klaus kind of, um, it's a Christmas film. If you haven't seen it, it's an independent film that was released released on Netflix. Um, it's absolutely perfect from Sergio Pablos. Um, and in it, it's about a youth movement. And my analysis of it is that that it's telling us to listen to youth movements and saying like sometimes the kids are smarter than we are. The the kids in the film are telling adults that they need to abandon their generations long uh, fights with each other and their their like generational kind of trauma. Um, that they don't even remember why they hate each other in these two kind of warring, warring factions. And the kids say, then get over it and make a better future. And the kids do that. So, so we can analyze that film as being a, a kind of reflection of the youth movements that we are seeing in the, the later 2010s and to today. But that, that interpretation is likely going to change also in the future. Um, so I think, I think something that's returnable, this is a really interesting question about returnable fiction. But, uh, but I do feel or... that some interpretations haven't changed that much, you know, with some movies, like if the, the critiques yeah. that were made of some movies in the late 60s and 1970s um, about what they were saying about the culture, I think have lasted till today, you know, it, 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 I think it really yeah. depends. But, but what, what makes it kind of, not timeless, but but something that we can return to and either agree or disagree with inter interpretations held before. And why is 1999 such a returnable year? I think it's a really fascinating question. Is it because it was 1999? It was the last year of the of the the century, or is it is it something else? Is it the actual quality of the films, or the fact that 9/11 happened two years later, and this is a year that we can kind of point to as the end of of something mm -hmm. um i i don't know i don't know what that is about it but i i'm inclined to say that we need distance to have the same kind of analysis of a year or a decade of film or even a film itself um but i don't think that invalidates and not that you're saying it does but i don't i don't think that it invalidates the the interpretations that are had and i mean we can return to anything we want and keep analyzing the hell out of it um it's just it is a fascinating phenomenon and i don't really have an answer as to why 1999 or the late 90s as a kind of block of years is something that we return to frequently why did like, i return to post-war sorry go ahead adam no no i just think it's a good answer and you know i i i, I i'm i'm now just silently racking my brain trying to think of post-war uh, christmas films for you but i'm sure oh. you found them all so you know yeah. It's okay if I just if I if I if I pop out, yeah. Yeah, th thank you, Adam. Uh, we really. Oh, my 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 pleasure, Vaughn. This is a really dumb question. Have you do you watch the the comedy show on Netflix? Do you watch? I think you should leave with Tim you Robbins. Leave. I think no. You leave. So in the second season of the second series, there's a little running joke in the second episode about an action movie series, not about Santa Claus, but where the actor just inexplicably is Santa Claus. Not someone mm. playing Santa Claus in a yeah. cop movie, but a cop movie series where the lead actor just 
completely surreally is Santa Claus, who then doesn't want to talk about his Santa Claus work and wants to be interviewed about the action movie itself. Uh, you may it, it could be a footnote within a footnote for you, but it's really funny. It is that an sounds fascinating. Yeah. I think you should. I think you should leave. Um, yeah. Right. Well, thank you uh, very much to Adam for joining us today. Adam, I hope you had fun, and I hope we uh, we managed to keep you entertained for the last hour or so. <laughs> I had a, I had a great time. Thank you guys so much for for having me. It's always fun to to talk about this stuff. Thank you again. Adam's book uh, Mind Games, which looks at the work of David Fincher, is out now and is uh, definitely recommended. Um, so, Adam, thank you again. Hi, guys. Thank you again. Okay, well, um, Adam had to uh, drop off there, but uh, the three of us are just wrapping things up here. We're going to quickly uh, go over the films a little bit more uh, and any points we didn't discuss, and then uh, we've got one final point to, uh, to kind of cover at the end here. So, uh, Toby, I believe we didn't really get a chance to talk about Office Space too much. It's a bit of a personal favourite of mine. What, what are your thoughts on, on the film Office Space? I think it's in keeping with uh, the movies that we talked about, like a Fight Club, American Beauty. There is this uh, sense of existential malaise that takes place, obviously, in another office. Uh, that the the main character he's grown sort of really bored. Um, uh, Ron Livingston, played by Peter Gibbons, is going really bored of his work. And um, and actually, the people who's work working with him as well have gone, which is actually a little bit different because it's much more of a uh, organic story that emerges from the office. Um, many of the employees are, are bored with the the work that they do. They they feel like they are just um, you know just basically going every day, doing the same thing. They're abstracted from their work. Their work is not a reflection of them, themselves. And it's making them deeply unhappy, again, despite the fact that they, they will make uh, relatively good in, in, incomes. And then the, the Ron Livingston character actually tries to, he, he tries to not come in, but he's rewarded by senior management for, for, for doing so while the, his friends who work in the office are, are sacked uh, or their sacking was, was pending. And, uh, and I think... I think one other movie that is, I think, is central to all of this, but is not in our mm-hmm. in our list, is Falling Down with Michael Douglas uh, by Joel Schumer, and um, and that movie, and it's very very similar to this movie, and very very similar to Fight Club. You have uh, an ordinary suburbanite guy who um, just can't take it anymore, right? He's 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 sitting in his car. Uh, it's the hottest day of the year. Uh, he gets out of his car. He get, gets into a, 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 a altercation with a guy in a in a shop. He 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 takes a bat. He he hits the the whole shop, and then he but he pays for the things that he took. And he, he then you know he he meets a a, a a group of gangsters, and they want to take money from him. But he's he's the guy. He's the you know he's so angry, despite being a suburban white middle class guy. And having all these things, he's very angry, and he actually um, scares the gangsters. The gangsters run away. He goes into a a uh, a burger joint. He gets out a, a gun in the burger joint because it's breakfast time, right? But it's uh, it's eleven thirty one. But breakfast ends at eleven thirty. But they won't serve him breakfast, and he wants breakfast, but they want to serve him lunch. And he pulls out the machine gun he took from the gangsters, and he holds up the the diner, but he pays for his food. And it, and it just goes 
uh, through to the movie, he wants to get to talk to his uh, his daughter and um, his ex wife, but they have a restraining order against him, and they they eventually leave, and they, the movie ends in you know a bloody uh, sort of gun battle, uh, and again it's this kind of um, you know normal ordinary guy deeply unsatisfied with his place in, in society losing losing the, his, his the control that he has within his relationship with his ex-wife the ex-wife actually notes that she's the one who's who's paying for the house now um it used to be him but it, it's it's her they're, they're fine without him they can they can generate income without him and live their lives without him and you know he's completely alienated from that kind of relationship that he had previously um very much like the 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 peter uh, gibbons character in, in this movie a little bit less comedic um very much like uh the movie fight club and i think that those are movies are so so close uh together and and i think that cuts out office space and fight club really cut out the the, the closest examples of this kind of um existential malaise that, that takes place uh associated with an office while um movies like uh, the matrix and um and the truman show are much more about um you know living a prescripted life that you have no control of i think they're more philosophical on at a wider at a wider level but um but again it's it's all going back to this sort of crisis of masculinity um and this 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 feminization in, in corporate spaces and uh, and and the the lack of uh, communal uh culture that um men used to have i think that what what's the greatest thing about office space is that there's a character here in the in the movie who peter givens lives with who's his roommate mate and he's kind of a cool guy he doesn't He's not so stressed. Um, no one ever says, you know, you got a case of the Mondays to him at, at all. And um, and in the end, Peter Gibbons goes and he he works with him, you know, uh, yeah, as a, as a laborer, you know. And uh, again, he's 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 not it's not adolescence, you know, but he's gone to a much more sort of atavistic, older form of of work working with his hands working with a group of men feeling much more like he has control and that he is a man you know yeah there's definitely uh, that idea of sort of the rejection of um of the technological um or relatively technological jobs that they have and a retreat back into um traditional uh, labor work and i think um, I think one of the things that works best about Office Space is the fact that it's genuinely funny. Like you can actually just put it on as a as a lighthearted comedy, but also it's it's very willing to also laugh at its main characters as well, and not take its characters and its central points kind of too seriously. Um, the very start of the film has one of the the main characters. Uh, who's very white and uh, very um, um, repressed in many ways, rapping along to gangster rap music. And then uh, a black man is walking towards him, I think trying to sell flowers. And he immediately switches from being very um, rapping aggressively along to this music and 
he kind of turns down the music and immediately stops rapping and kind of looks around and only wants the, the the, the black person has actually passed by that he's then willing to kind of get back into this ghetto fantasy that he's living out in his car as he makes his way to work and he's stuck in his traffic jam so it's um yeah I, I think it works well for a number of reasons and one of them is i don't think it takes its central characters uh, too seriously um right Vaughn, was there any films that um we you didn't get a chance to speak about out the six it was you know an very kind of quick run through on a lot of films which you could do a deep dive on so um are there any of the films that we kind of looked at today which you didn't get a chance to speak about or that you'd um, like to speak about more well um i have yeah so being john malkovich um i saw that for the first time last year i think mm-hmm. and it has just been in the back of my mind since i watched it it's what an insane film and chaotic the back of your mind <laughs> brilliant it's oh it's so have you seen much of um charlie kaufman's other work no i don't think i have so um, charlie kaufman wrote that and spike jones directed it um I, I would definitely recommend many of his other works um that he, he has written and then subsequently he's he's also written and directed films although i have to say i prefer the ones he's written and then had spike jones direct um but sorry on on your on your goal yeah no thank you it yeah it's it's kind of a crazy film and um i think the thing for me of all of these films that that boils down and the most um interesting kind of angle on all of them is how people are used and this idea Mm -hmm. of use of a human is running through all of these films and through the late 90s where people kind of feel like they've lost individuality um especially Mm -hmm. young white men in corporate sectors they don't know what their identity is and uh there's this kind of feeling that other people are allowed to know their identity um with feminist liberation and gay liberation and all of these other things um we have social uh, and racial kind of issues and very, very, very marginal kind of um, progress for different communities, or at least acknowledgements of different communities in mainstream media. So white young men in the 90s are feeling like they're losing their individuality or they're losing their identity in the mainstream because there are now new focuses um, on other demographics in mainstream media and and just in society in general. Um, So I think the idea of being used and -hmm. all of these specifically white men being used in these films, it's presented differently in each of them, but especially with kind of The Matrix and The Truman Show, it's really fascinating um, the kind of utilitarian nature of people that that either machines or other people would decide to cultivate and and um, kind of create this artificial environment in which to keep a human for their own personal use. Um, 
and for their own personal use for the collective. Like in the background of the Truman Show, there's an archway that says um, in Latin, one for all and everything for one. And that that kind of signifies that Truman is the one who is for everyone. Everyone gets to watch his life, but everything within the dome is for Truman. And I think that's that's just such a fascinating philosophy to pick apart and break down um, the idea of one for all and all for for one, especially because that's in a very old kind of American traditional phrase, e pluribus unum, um, of the many is one. So, or out of the many is one. So, I, like all of all of these thoughts are are just going on with all of these films I think and yeah. I can't pick just one or one one interpretation to go with but I think what what it boils down to is the the just fascination with how people are used in these films um yeah absolutely the, yeah um just to close on the Charlie Kaufman of it um adaptation and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind were the, the two that um he no, wrote no, I hate adaptation you, you oh, hate oh. adaptation Okay, well, I I thoroughly thoroughly love it. I can't watch um, that shit, and I can't. I, I I'm not out here watching Schenectady, New York. I'll, I'll never be watching that. I have to say, I I struggle with that one um a bit more than uh, I did with Eternal and uh, Eternal Sunshine. Spotless Mind is magnificent. Yeah, yeah, and directed by Michelle Gondry. That one. Um, I I would I would um definitely uh, advocate for you watching adaptation Eternal Sunshine, Vaughn. But um, Toby will um metaphorically hit you if you do watch adaptation so take take well, how old were you when you watched adaptation that i watched when i was four no um I, w- I came to that a bit later i probably would have been about um 20 or something like that mm-hmm. okay so, came that one a little bit later i wasn't didn't catch that one until i um right um the final question I had for you guys um, was, how do you think the main characters in the six films was looked at, compare and contrasted to each other? And how do you think how do you think they work as point of view characters of late 90s American life? I know we've been talking for a while now, so maybe we'll try and make this one. Uh, I think the most important thing is what Vaughn said. Like, I think a lot of these characters feel like they're being used for things. And, you know, in some ways, obviously, as we look at generations, we tend to look at sort of white, upper middle class, middle class people. And we don't, and actually, you know, in cinema and in society, these people are sometimes looked at as um, as people that you have to, you know, they're status symbols, right? They're, 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 they have achieved a certain level of, of you know, inclusion into society to be representatives of the society. Well, yet all a lot of these people feel like they're being used you know like they're i'm just part of this ad agency my role has nothing to do with how i feel in my life or the feel that all you know the, the problems in my family my role as a community as a programmer is abstracted for, for my life my 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 role and you know assessing uh, accidents again it's just your job is not you're not you are not your job right and a lot of these people feel like they're 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 playing a role. Consequentially, they're 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 giving back to society, but society isn't giving them whatever intrinsically they need. Is it even if it's 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 a sense of masculinity, 
a sense of position, a sense of, um, you know, existential awareness, a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. All of these people are they're being used. And then in the in the broader, more philosophical movies, the Truman Show and, and the Matrix, the, 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 they actually are part of, you know, helping uh, uh, a, a race, a different race of people sustain themselves or, you know, and actually helping the whole of humanity sustain itself by this, this, this lie of, of Truman's, Truman's existence. Everyone become, everyone is playing, everyone is playing a role that they don't, they feel that they have not, have not signed up for. And, uh, and again, you know, you know, I think that the, the 1960s and 70s generation, uh, you know, they, they were hippies and all this, but, but, at, at the highest level, it was about a kind of higher level of self-fulfillment, you know, being oneself, being able to do what one, one wants and live how one wants. And that can be reactionary in terms of uh, reactionary uh, masculinity. But yeah, I think in terms of the, the way that the characters, the core thing that all these characters have, it's this, this, this feeling of, of, of being used obviously the 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 american beauty characters i think are written uh more poorly that they they, they don't have any uh, any qualities that's um justifiable um office space characters are, are, are very fun and um quite clever and um really nice to nice to be around to be honest um but uh and then um uh, fight fight club obviously again this very very similar uh, type of characters very similar sociologically demographically um you know some reactionary tendencies are coming out in the characters but the yeah i think that's i think that high, at the highest level i think you guys can go into more so on a relational level but at the highest level i think Vaughan's idea that everyone's kind of being used is uh, i think it's central relational uh dynamics between these these characters on anything to to add to that um thanks for saying i'm right toby no i i i do i do think that the central thing is is the being used um i i think it would be a lot to try and compare and contrast them on like individual levels but mm -hmm. that overarching theme i think is definitely something that sticks out for me and that relates all of these films that we're talking about um just to push that a little bit further and maybe problematize it a little bit I think maybe the most fascinating thing in any of these films for me on this topic of use is that the audience at the end of the Truman show, when he does walk out the door, they all cheer as though they've been waiting for him to like gain consciousness and leave, even though they've been actively complicit in watching his life and knowing that he's trapped there and contributing contributing to it by buying merchandise they all all of the the um audience members that we see have merchandise or the bar is called the truman bar and they're showing mm -hmm. it constantly 24 7 so like they're all benefiting from him staying in this this fictionalized world that's created for him but they're also happy when he gets out as though it's been this 30 plus year like social experiment of watching a rat in a mm -hmm. science scientist kind of labyrinth waiting for it to get out. And that's fascinating to me because 
it is the audience in the film, but it's also the audience watching it, right? Like it's us watching it that we want him to get out of it, but we're also enjoying the film. And we're enjoying the experience of him being in this bubble, even if we're disgusted by it or have our own kind of moral issues with it. We also cheer for him getting out. And they could have they could have had that audience do anything. They could have had them be mad. They could have had them not really care. They, like There are so many options of how the audience in the film could have reacted. But the fact that they were all cheering and they were all happy and like overjoyed and crying that he got out, that's that's really interesting to me that it's like that as a social concept of people in the late 90s being self-aware and or seemingly self-aware and thinking that they're being used in this way. They want someone to not be used even though they're happy to use them. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. It does absolutely. make sense. Yeah. And I think in that Truman Show, the, the constructors of the Truman Show they allowed that meta narrative too much. I think, I think they, they, they kind of endorsed it, especially with that girl who, you know, was, was set up as a kind of sort of uh, failed flirtation or, or she went too far. Right. You know, why did they let her talk to him for so long? And then, and then and obviously the audience reaction to that is, well, you know, like, is she going to say it? You know, we want to, we want to say it. There was no negativity towards it. Why did they let that happen? You know, I, I always found that strange. I, you know, if, if, if he was my, you know, if I was the authoritarian figure and, and, and he was mine, I, I would never <laughs> allow that to happen. You know, it is but, no um, surprise to me that the person that Toby most identifies with in this, <laughs> you know, when I am God, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I do think that. And I, and I, and I, I agree with you. Um, uh, the people that I think that, that the kind of world all in all, almost all of these films, that they're, they're satisfying at certain levels, you know, they're satisfying at the level of survival, satisfying a relational level, but, you know, relationships between people to some extent, but not all, you know, many of these characters are, are lonely but they're satisfying at certain levels, you know, even Truman himself, you know, he has a decent job, <laughs> even though it's all fake, you know, they're satisfying at a certain mm-hmm. level, but there's a higher level where it's not satisfying. And I think it's, it's at, at that point where the audience, um, whether the audience is from the nineties or, or the, our audience, you know, us know that we really want Truman to, get out even though at several levels that the life that he's living is satisfying and i think at several levels the life that the people in all of these movies are living are actually satisfying some of you know uh, american beauty it's played to the extremes you know all of the 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 neuroses you know with the goth kid and you know you want to have sex with the the, the king of um of uh, oh king of real estate home, yeah. home real estate and all all this and and you're you're you know like the really you're both a Nazi and you're really really homophobic but you're you're sexually repressed all of these things are kind of extreme they're they're kind of extreme but you know and those those all those issues exist it, it existed in suburbia they 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 do exist but the suburban lives that they have uh you know they're not poor. They, they're not, you know, they, they don't live in gangs. They don't live in ghettos. They aren't, aren't unemployed. The lives that they have are satisfying to a certain level, but 
there's that at higher level, even for Truman himself, there's a higher level where the high level of ownership that they don't have. And, uh, and I think uh, the audience wanted Truman to have that. Yeah, I think for myself, just to close up, um, agree with everything you guys have said. Um, I think these films in the, the late 90s uh, in, in cinema, I think I often think of it as a time where um, kind of the, the great worry they had was more existential and it was a, a worry about not sort of sleepwalking through life. And you contrast that with obviously the 9-11 events and the Iraq war and everything that kind of came afterwards. Um, the, although there are still elements of, of that still being the case, both in, in real life, um, as far as not you know sleepwalking through your life and everything else, I think we moved towards a much more, um, you know, we need to talk about real issues and we need to um, worry about actual threats rather than existential ones. And so for myself, when I think of, the late 90s and the films we've picked here as well as everything you guys have said and have been representative of you know sort of being used uh, these characters being used i do think that it's also representative of the time where we were maybe more reflective on existential threat rather than um sort of physical one that's a um, really interesting idea yeah we should do a podcast about that um right that's us quite a bit into the day now so we should probably call today um thank you again to adam for for joining us it was fantastic to have him on the show and thank you to uh, toby and Vaughn for hanging around with me at the end here to add some final thoughts uh we'll have another episode for you in the near future until then goodbye bye bye